this last week, if you were watching the news, you saw uh, the trial that took place with Amber Geyer. She was a Dallas patrol officer who had entered an apartment she said she thought was her own, and she saw a person there on the couch eating ice cream and startled, she shot this man. And this happened just over a year ago, and the, the pain and the anguish that rippled through his family was felt in so many communities around this nation, indeed, and many people throughout our nation. This last week was the trial and, and the sentencing, and the brother of the man who was shot, the man who was shot was named Botham Jean. His brother, Brant, had the opportunity to give a victim impact statement at the trial. And this is what he said, this 18-year-old young man. He said, if you are truly sorry, I forgive you. I love you as a person. I want the best for you. Give your life to Christ. And in this moment, he was trying to apply what he knew as a disciple of Jesus, that we are called to extend love and kindness, not necessarily to people who deserve it, but even for people who don't deserve it. That is the way of Jesus. And then what Brant did in this moment, nobody saw coming. He asked the judge if it would be okay if he would give Amber a hug. And the judge granted that. And he got up from the witness stand and embraced Amber Geyer for almost a, a full minute. And he received a lot of praise for this, but also he received some criticism as well. But what he was doing in this moment was living out the way of Jesus and extending love and forgiveness to people. Now, as we think about this, just what goes on in a person's mind as they seek to do this? As they think about someone who has taken something of value from them, the life of a, a sibling. How should we look at people? We've seen situations, and maybe sometimes we've felt a rage within ourselves, where people have said at trials, I hope you rot in hell. I hope you die. I want the worst from you. But what happens when something takes place like this situation? What is assumed about humans and the value of humanity in that? What causes someone to open their heart to someone who doesn't deserve it. If you contrast that with the attitudes of, of some other times and places, for example, of nations that turn their hearts away from people in need, what is assumed about people then as well? Some of you know who Romeo Dallaire is. He was uh, the Canadian officer in charge of the United Nations peacekeeping efforts in Rwanda. And at the beginning of the Rwandan genocide, he tried to awaken the conscience of nations and to get aid to come in to stop the, the massacre that was happening. And so in this book, Shake Hands with the Devil, The Failure of Humanity in Rwanda, he, he recounts how some bureaucrats came, <coughs> excuse me, some bureaucrats came in the early days of the genocide and they left saying this. We will recommend that our government not intervene as the risks are too high and all that is here are humans. And as they got back on their planes and the massacre continued, some 800,000 Rwandans lost their lives, men, women, and children. So there's a contrast between Humanity operating at its best when it opens its heart to one another and humanity at its worst when it closes its heart to one another. And what goes on with the assumptions behind the scenes? All that is here are humans. So we're going to close our heart. Or here is a hurting person who no doubt has caused harm. But I'm going to open my heart to them. We're going to look today in the Gospel of Luke 
at a, a, a scene from the life of Jesus in which he tells what is perhaps his most famous and, and arguably his most powerful story, the story of the Good Samaritan. In fact, many people who have never even read anything about the life of Jesus have heard of the Good Samaritan, even if they don't know that he's the one who originated this story. And many of us think that the point of this is just to go out and be a good person. I mean, we'll talk about someone who maybe stops and helps us with our car that broke down as being a good Samaritan. And we, by that, we mean that person was doing a good deed. But is that what's going on here? Is that what Jesus is, is really after here? Many people are surprised to learn the question that is asked that was meant to trip Jesus up, a question that had to do with eternal life and a, and a stunning pop quiz that Jesus gives in response to that question that then ignited the story of the Good Samaritan, which is meant to impact your life and mine as well. So we're going to call our study today, Love in Action. And we're going to look at this episode from the life of Jesus. <laughs> but as we get ready to do so, let's pause and pray and ask God to, to teach us this day. Would you pray with me? Lord, each one of us knows what it means to live in a world where humanity often closes its heart to one another. And when we see examples like Brant Jean this last week, who had every right to close his heart to the woman who took the life of his brother, he instead opened his heart. And in that, the world witnessed a stunning display of grace. Would you meet us in this moment, Lord? Whether we come in here this morning, diehard followers of Jesus, or whether we're just kind of exploring what it is that he has to say, would you meet us and help us to see the kind of people that Jesus not only calls us to be, but who also has gone to great lengths to redeem us so that we can be these new kinds of human beings who walk this earth with love for humanity. So wherever we are, whether we come in here full of faith or, or full of doubt, whether we come in here with so many questions that are unanswered, or whether we come in here with firm convictions, having walked with you and, and tasted of your goodness, would you meet us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> I feel like I'm breaking down, like I'm weeping or something in some of these moments, but I'm not, I'm all right. <coughs> I apologize, I know this has got to be hard for you. All right, let's begin. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. This is what Luke, the physician, tells us happened at this point in the life of Jesus. Behold, look, he says, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we see here a man who is a lawyer. Now, we need to get out of our minds what we think of as lawyers, and put into the mind what a lawyer was in the day of Jesus. A lawyer in the day of Jesus wasn't someone who went to court and argued on behalf of someone. A lawyer in that day was an expert in the Old Testament law. They were the master teachers. Most of them had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, that book that we have a hard time getting through. Numbers, Deuteronomy, had it down cold. So this lawyer stands up. As Jesus is teaching to the crowds, and he wants to put him to the test, Luke tells us. And so he asked the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, my friends, this is a great question. If there's such a thing as eternal life to be had, 
We should all be asking this question. We should want to know what the answer to that is. I mean, if it's possible that we can live forever and Jesus knows the answer to this question, then we should want to know what it is, right? But it's also a very relevant question for us to ask as well. When we ask it, we usually mean, how do I go to heaven when I die? And that is part of the the answer. But what the people at Jesus' time would have heard from Jesus is something a little bit different. Remember, Jesus was talking about the coming kingdom of God. That was the theme of his preaching. There's a day coming when God himself is going to come and set everything to right. All injustice will be set to right. And everything that causes pain and sorrow and weakness will be banished from this world. And so Jesus said, that coming day is actually arriving in me. It's, it's finding its expression in me. So he's calling people to repent. So Jesus is saying, <laughs> basically, he is the key to understanding the kingdom of God. And so this man, hearing Jesus say these kind of things, wants to actually put him to the test. He's trying to trip up Jesus, as we learn through the gospels the religious leaders were trying to do. So he asked them this seemingly honest question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And here's the pop quiz from Jesus. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, Jesus, instead of answering the question, turns it back on him and says, how do you understand the Torah? That story of the, the origin of the people of God in the Old Testament. How do you understand that? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So here, this expert in the law dives into the law. He pulls a text from what is known as the Shema out of Deuteronomy that emphasizes the love of God. Then he pulls another text out of the book of Leviticus about loving your neighbors yourself. He puts it together. That's the answer that he gives to Jesus. Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you understand it? This man summarizes it as loving God with everything you've got and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, how would you like to get a pop quiz from Jesus on the content of the Old Testament? I mean, that would be pretty daunting. But this man nails it, right? And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly. What the scriptures require you to do is to love God perfectly and to love your neighbor just like you love yourself. That's it. Do that, and you will live. Now, I don't know about you, but I find what Jesus does here tactically very interesting. I mean, why doesn't Jesus simply say, believe in me and you shall be saved? I mean, he calls people to believe in him on other occasions, but he doesn't do it here. Instead, he in a sense kind of points this young man away from himself and to the law. What's Jesus up to here? Well, maybe he suspects that this man doesn't really understand the importance of what he just said. The Apostle Paul would later put it like this. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, when the scriptures call us to love God with everything we've got and to love our neighbors ourselves, in one sense, it's meant to stop us in our tracks, to make us put our hand over our mouth and go, whoa. If that's the standard, then what hope is there for me? So the law says... What the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, (coughs) excuse me, for by the works of the law, 
no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so here we're told one of the purposes of the law in the Old Testament was to show people that they've, they've so far from, from having done what God has wanted them to do that they've actually fallen very short of it. And no one can actually be justified, that is to, to be declared not guilty in God's sight, by keeping the law. So when Jesus points this man back to the law and says, what is required in it? And the man answers, love God perfectly and your neighbors yourself. Jesus says, go do that and you'll receive eternal life. That man should have said, ah, oh, then who can be justified? Who can be saved? What, what hope is there for me? But that's not what he did. Luke tells us in verse 29, but he, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So even though the law is meant to make it perfectly clear for us that we can't be justified by the law, this man is seeking to justify himself by the law by asking the clarifying question, who is my neighbor? Now, I don't want to read too much in between the lines here, but he's asking a clarification on that second point, right? The first point was what? Love God with everything you've got, heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't ask a clarifying question about that, which you would think, if anything, that's what he should focus in on. Instead, he asks a question about the second part that Jesus said was correct in his answer, the part about loving your neighbor. So who is my neighbor? Who am I obligated to love? What's the assumption behind his question? There are some people that he should love and other people he doesn't have to love, right? Right? That's the assumption behind the question. So this question about eternal life, the pop quiz that Jesus gives, the answer this man said, the correct answer, and then this follow-up question, who is my neighbor, is the context for Jesus telling his story about the Good Samaritan, the greatest story probably that Jesus ever told. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus replied, a man was going down from, <coughs> excuse me, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, leaving him half dead. Now, it's easy to just kind of rush over this because, I mean, here you, you hear a story of a man who, who got beaten half to death. But let's stop and ask the question, what is the value of the man? Why should we care that this happened? I mean, there's a whole set of assumptions that Jesus is bringing to this story about why this is a significant event. Philip James Bailey in his book, or his work, Festus, had these words to say, let every man think himself an act of God. In other words, human beings are intentional creations of God. We're not accidents. And so if every person thought of himself as an act of God, how would that change the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about other people? That's significant. Or in the Declaration of Independence, which gave us those, those amazing words at the very beginning, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And enshrined in our own declaration is this acknowledgement that what gives people value is the fact that they are created by God himself. Now that's significant. So when Jesus says that there is a man who is 
walking down this road and he gets hurt deeply. That's something. That's significant. Now contrast that with the attitude of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who was a justice to the U.S. Supreme Court back in the early 1900s. He said, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or grain of sand. Now, I'm an animal lover, so I, I, I don't want to say animals have no significance at all. I mean, I think that animals are, are really amazing and, and can testify to the, to the amazing creativity of God. But here, he says that people are no different, even from a grain of sand. Now, we don't count sand as significant. I mean, we might put it in our garden or something like that, but there's no moral value. There's nothing significant about a grain of sand. But there's consequences that flow when we adopt this attitude from people. The late Stephen Hawking wrote, or he actually said this in an interview. He said, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. And so if that's what humanity is, then why is it significant that a man was on his way from Jericho, from Jerusalem, and got beaten up? What we believe matters. If humans are an act of God, it matters the way we treat one another. If we're just chemical scum, then it doesn't matter. I mean, seriously, if we're honest, it doesn't matter. Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad, one time gave an interview and he said these words. He said, I'm pretty much agnostic at this point in my life, but I find atheism just as hard to get my head around as I find fundamental Christianity. Because if there's no such thing as cosmic justice, what is the point of being good? And then he said this. This is the one thing that no one has ever explained to me. Why shouldn't I go rob a bank, especially if I'm smart enough to get away with it? What's stopping me? If there's no such thing as God, that means humanity is just chemical scum. And if we're just chemical scum, then why not try to advantage ourselves, even if it means disadvantaging other people? Why not rob a bank? Or why not assault a person traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and beat him up and leave him half dead? I mean, the people who robbed this person certainly saw nothing but dollar signs. <laughs> Whatever this man had, it advantaged them. And so, a man, an image bearer, a human being, an intentional act of God was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, leaving him half dead. This is the setup that Jesus gives. This patch of road was known as the bloody way. So when Jesus talked about this happening, people were like, yeah, I mean, that's a dangerous stretch of road. As recently as the 19th century, Turkish soldiers uh, gave escorts for people traveling down this road. It was still that dangerous. It was still known as a place where you took your life into your own hands if you traveled this road. So when Jesus said something like this happened, people were like, yeah, that happens all the time there. <coughs> Verse 31. Jesus continues. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So here Jesus uses two people from the people of God in Israel. A priest and a Levite, both who were in charge of leading the worship of the people of God. And they, they were traveling, they were on a journey as well, and they saw this person who had beaten, been beaten and left for dead. 
they saw him, they noticed him, and they intentionally passed by on the other side. That'd be like people, like you all, looking at me and saying, okay, if anyone's going to help that person, it should be John. He's the pastor. That's his job, right? <laughs> you would expect that the people who teach other folks that you ought to love God, to love other people, would be the preeminent examples of love in action. But here are these religious experts, these spiritual leaders of the people of God, and they see someone in need, and they close their heart to him. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us why they did this. Perhaps the reason doesn't really matter. They just did it. They closed their hearts. And Jesus continued. Verse 33, he said, But a Samaritan... Now, let's just pause here before we go much further. The people listening in Jesus' audience, the Jewish people, when they heard the word Samaritan, maybe would have had a little throw-up come to the back of their throat. <laughs> they would have had shivers on their spine. Jews despised Samaritans. Yes, there was racism going on there. They, they saw the Samaritans as half-breeds. Jews had compromised by intermarrying with the Gentile world. They set up their own capital in Samaria. They set up their own house of worship. They saw them as, as fake people, so to speak. And so Jesus, talking about how a Levite and a Samaritan saw this man pass by and then introduces a Samaritan. Oh, this just would have gotten everyone angry from the very word. And the Gospel of John, just as a side note, the apostle tells us there of a time when Jesus actually traveled through Samaria and he stopped at a well and a woman was there in the middle of the day drawing water and he asked her for a cup of water. He gives us this little parenthetical statement. Jews did not have dealings with Samaritans. This, this woman was surprised that Jesus even talked to her because she knew that Jews don't talk to people like her, not Samaritans. They despise Samaritans. But Jesus said a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. That is, this man who had been beaten up and left for dead. And when he saw him, he... And let's just say we have a blank here. How would you fill out the rest of that statement? If you did not know this story in advance, and you knew that Samaritans hated Jews and Jews hated Samaritans, how would you fill in this, this statement here? Let's just put it in the form of a pop quiz. A... Passed by on the other side, just like the Levite and the priest did. The Samaritan passed by on the other side. B, spit on the despised scum. C, jumped on him to make sure that he was really dead. D, got the heck out of there. Or E, was moved by compassion and helped him. Now, the original audience probably would have said any of the first four would probably have been what happened. Because there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. There's no such thing as a Samaritan who was moved by compassion and would actually help somebody. So what Jesus said next, nobody saw coming because those people don't do nice kind of things. But Jesus said the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. In other words, his heart opened up to this man, this image bearer, in need. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, 
and gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus says here, the Samaritan had compassion on this man. He didn't do what the religious leaders of Israel did, passing by on the other side. He didn't spit on this man, thinking he was scum. He didn't jump up and down on his chest, making sure he was dead. He didn't get the heck out of Dodge. This man was filled with compassion. Love in action made him move toward this man, open his heart to him, and seek to do what he could to bring healing and hope and to bring this man back to life. (laughs) He took him to the inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is the equivalent of two days' wages. I don't know what you make in the course of two days, but just in your own mind, if you can compute it that fast. He took out from his own wallet money, put it on the counter, gave it to the innkeeper and said, here, this should cover some expenses. But in case they don't, when I come back through here, I'm going to stop by and see how he's doing. See if you had any expenses. And if you did, just hang on to those receipts. I'm going I'm to cover them for you. Now, my friends, it's hard for us to imagine, even just in describing how Jews despise Samaritans, how shocking this would have been. I remember when I was a campus minister teaching Aggies, I used to say this would be kind of like Jesus making a Texas Longhorn the hero of the story. That was back when Aggies like despised Longhorns. I don't know if that really is the case anymore or not. Um, But that was kind of it. It was kind of said in fun and in jest. But that's really not even scratching the surface. One commentator by the name of Philip uh, Graham Ryken put it like this. Maybe it would be something like an Islamic fundamentalist helping an evangelical Christian who was injured in a terrorist attack. It was the last thing anyone would expect. That's the shock value of what Jesus is doing here in telling this story. He says, you want to know what it means to love your neighbors yourself? Let me put up someone that you despise. I'm going to make him the hero of the story, who went to great personal expense and inconvenience and loved an image bearer of God. This is what it means when the law says you should love your neighbor as yourself. Martin Luther King Jr. in commentating on this passage said, I imagine the first question the priest and Levi asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? My friends, I'm uncomfortable with where Jesus brings us in this passage. I don't like the implications of this. I like my life to be safe. I like for it to be convenient. I like for it to be predictable. I don't like it when God puts me in situations where I have to be uncomfortable, where I'm confronted with whether or not I'm going to help another image bearer of God. But God does that. And it's never convenient. This man, this good Samaritan, moved toward this person in need. The graphic we've been using for this entire series is an etching from Gustav Dore of the Good Samaritan. It pictures this man taking this injured person off of his horse to the inn. And it's a perfect picture of what Jesus means for us to exercise love toward our fellow human beings. So Jesus finishes the story. And it's just a few powerful verses, right? It wasn't a long, elaborate story. It just got to the heart of the issue. So Jesus then asked the question, which of these 
Three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? <laughs> you see what Jesus does here? He changes the question. The man came to Jesus and said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus turns the question around and says, who needs you to be a neighbor for them? The difference is night and day. The one question seeks to limit our obligation to love. Jesus turns it around and in asking his question, blows that limitation out of the water. He basically says, who needs you? Who needs you to be a neighbor to them? And then we're told the man said, perhaps reluctantly, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus has told us that this good Samaritan had compassion on this man. Here, this lawyer is forced to say, the man who showed mercy is the one who proved to be a neighbor. And so this constellation of words, mercy, compassion, and love, is exactly what the scriptures mean when it calls us to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Or as Jesus would put it <laughs> elsewhere, these are the weightier these are the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. This is the way that Jesus calls us to live and move and have our being. This is the way he wants us to make our way in this world. And Jesus says in verse 37, he said to him, you go and do likewise. So if this man thought he had it nailed down what it meant to love God with everything he had, and then just wanted the clarification on his definition of a neighbor. And Jesus said, this is what I mean when I say I want you to love one another. Go do likewise. This man should have said, what hope is there for me? I mean, maybe on my good day I've done something like this. But all the time, 24-7, 365 days out of the year, this is what God wants of me? So to summarize our study so far, my friends, Jesus calls us to love others because a neighbor is something that we are, not something that we have. Yes, we have neighbors, but we're called to be neighbors. We're called to love one another, especially those in need, because a neighbor is something that we are, not just something that we have. So just a couple points of application here. <laughs> Let's get the facts straight. <coughs> Let's get the facts straight. <clears throat> what Jesus is not saying here to this man is to go and try and work really hard. And if you, if you nail this, then you can get into heaven. This man had already failed, just like we have failed at loving people well. None of us loves God with everything we've got. Sometimes we might love our neighbor when it's convenient for us. But, but love sacrificially all the time in ways that are inconvenient and difficult. My friends, eternal life is something we... It's not something we achieve. It's something that we simply receive from Jesus. The man was asking the right question about inheriting eternal life, but he was wrong that there's something he could do to get it. There's nothing we can do to get it. It simply comes as a free gift from Jesus. The Apostle Paul put it like this. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For no one, I'm sorry, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have been justified 
by his blood. There's that word justified. Justified by the blood of Jesus, not justified by what we do, not justified by our performance on how well we love, but justified by Jesus. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And as I've indicated before, whenever we see that phrase, the wrath of God, we need to be thinking of the judicial wrath of God, where God, if he were to pass a just sentence over our life, would find all of us falling short. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, my friends, what we need to understand from this passage is that Jesus became for us the great Samaritan. He walked his own bloody way, not from Jerusalem to Jericho, but from Jerusalem to the place of the skull, Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem, the place where they crucified people. And there, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, became the man of sorrows as he took the weight of the sin of all those who trust in him upon his shoulders. He who is rich, becoming poor for our sake, so that through him we might become spiritually blessed beyond imagination. So my friends, when we hear this story, we need to get the facts straight. Even though Jesus points this man back to the law, he's not pointing him to the law in order to get him to get his act straight. He's pointing him back to the law so that he will see, man, I have failed miserably. Lord, have mercy upon me. And that's exactly where people need to be brought to see that they need mercy from Jesus. <coughs> so let's get the facts straight. But let's also get the question right. The question is not who is my neighbor, but how do I be a neighbor to other people? That is the the question that is left ringing in our ears as we hear this story from Jesus. Jesus is telling us basically, look, you cannot divide this world into two kinds of people, those who are worthy of your love and those who aren't. You can't do that. And that was what was so brilliantly on display this week in a courthouse in Texas when Brant Jean looked at the woman who had shot and killed her brother who expressed deep sorrow for that. And Brant, as an 18-year-old follower of Jesus, said, if you're truly sorry, then I forgive you. I, I love you as a human being. I want the best for you. Give your life to Christ. That was the example that we get of a person putting into to practice what it means to love other people, to love other human beings, image bearers of God. So, so I think Jesus is saying, you know, when I'm calling you to, to love other people, it's, it's not uh, these people are worthy and these people are not worthy of it. I'm calling you to love people, especially those who are in need. The Proverbs tell us this, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no concern. That's really interesting in light of the two people in Jesus' story, right, who passed by on the other side. These religious leaders, these spiritual authorities saw this man and had no concern for him. Scott Sauls in his book, Irresistible Faith, said these insightful words. He said, the world thirsts for a different kind of neighbor. Not the kind who deny their fellow man, take up their comforts and follow their dreams but the kind who deny themselves, take up their crosses and follow Jesus in his mission of loving a weary world to life. That's spot on, exactly what Jesus is calling us to and telling us this story. 
I love the way Jeremy Tree put it. Learning from Jesus is not about learning information in order to pass a test. It's about learning to love. And here's the final point of application, my friends. Let's get the calling straight. Let's get the calling correct, rather. The calling, my friends, is not for us to be heroes. Even though in the telling of the story, Jesus puts a good Samaritan and he becomes a heroic figure. We're not called to be heroes. We're simply called to be saints. In the book, The Justice Calling, which we're getting a reading group together for, the authors in there say, our response to God's calling in Jesus Christ to truth, power, I'm sorry, truth, justice, and power will not ultimately make us heroes. Our calling is even better. We are called to be saints. Now, when you hear that word saint, what you hear is, you know, a super spiritual person that some religious organization has put a seal of approval on who's done a miracle and everybody should aspire to. You need to get that out of your mind. In the scripture, the predominant words that are used to describe followers of Jesus is this word called saints. It simply means holy ones or like Jesus ones. It's used 64 times in the New Testament alone to describe the followers of Jesus. You and I are called not to be heroes as if saving this world depends on us. Jesus is the hero of the story. But we're called to be saints. We're called to follow in his footsteps and extending compassion and mercy and love to people. Back in The Justice Calling, the authors say, as saints, we don't occasionally fight for truth and justice. By the grace of God, <coughs> we live the way of truth, justice, and righteousness. In other words, this calling that we have to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to love our fellow human beings, is not just one more thing to add to our calendar, of a calendar already overstuffed with things we need to do. It's simply an overflow of who we are as human beings, as, as people who are followers of Jesus, who are calling, whose calling is to follow in his footsteps. There's this interesting proverb that says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. That is, the righteous, these saints, not, not super spiritual people, just ordinary, average, everyday people like you and me who follow in the footsteps of Jesus, trying to live according to his commands. When the righteous prosper, people living in right relationship to one another, <coughs> the city rejoices. What would it look like for our city to rejoice at the sight of seeing Christians using their time, their talent, and their treasures to bring healing to this community, to love it back to life, to go to those places that are especially broken and to bring healing and the love of Jesus to that? What would it look like if our community in those very broken places would say, hey, the saints are coming. They're coming in Jesus' name. There's these people who have been formed after the identity of Christ. They're following in his footsteps. And those are the people who are the first responders. They are the ones who sacrifice their time, their talent, their treasures to love this world back to life. They are the ones who are, in the words of this story we looked at, the good Samaritans of our neighborhood. My friends, I'm not calling you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps to be good people. I'm calling you to follow Jesus and to be human in a new way that he calls us to be where we are changed and transformed by his grace, overwhelmed that he went to the cross for us, that he rose again for us, that there's a day coming when the kingdom of God will come in all its power and glory and renew everything. And we live in light of that story. And it changes the way that we are and make our way in this world. My friends, this series on 
justice, mercy, and the mission of Jesus has been a special one for me, and I hope it has been for you as well. We have one more step in our journey next week when Steve Lau from Servants Anonymous will be here. He's going to walk us through a passage from another major prophet, a prophet Isaiah, that Jesus himself studied and emulated, and we're going to see kind of how that puts into focus the balance that we ought to have as we follow Jesus. And so I want to call you back to that as well. But in the meantime, Mercy Hill Church, may this story of the Good Samaritan work its way deep into your hearts so that you are transformed, not simply by the story of Jesus, but by the life of Jesus himself, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who gave himself for you so that you can be changed and transformed and loved this way because you have been loved this way.